In the aftermath of George Floyd's tragic death, many Americans are calling for the removal of monuments and memorials in public spaces that they believe celebrate white supremacy. In response, some city and state officials have taken steps to remove the controversial statues. Richmond's mayor recently ordered the removal of all Confederate statues in the city, including the towering figures located along Monument Avenue. In Kentucky, officials voted to remove a statue of Jefferson Davis from the state capitol. And in Washington, D.C., protesters pulled down a statue of Confederate General Albert Pike. Yet the push to remove monuments and memorials is not limited to just Confederate statues. Christopher Columbus statues have been vandalized, in some cases decapitated and toppled in California, Florida, Missouri, Rhode Island, and Virginia. The George Washington statue was vandalized in Chicago, as well as statues of Francis Scott Key and Ulysses S. Grant in San Francisco. City officials in Boston voted to remove a replica of the Emancipation Memorial located in our nation's capital. That memorial, depicting Abraham Lincoln standing above a kneeling slave while holding the Emancipation Proclamation, is itself an object of protest as demonstrators have called for its removal from Lincoln Park in recent weeks. When should Americans remove monuments from the proverbial public square? Should all of those targeted come down? How do citizens make that decision? Where do they make it? And what exactly is a National Garden of American Heroes? Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari, associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Well, hello, guys. Um, I just... I'm really interested in this con- in this topic, and I think it's a really interesting one. And to help us work through it, we have a special guest joining the podcast today to help us think through these questions. Uh, Greg Weiner is the provost and academic vice president at Assumption University, where he is also an associate professor of political science. He spent some time working on Capitol Hill in the Senate, thankfully, and is also a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Greg is a prolific writer and the author of four books on politics and American political thought. He is one of the most thoughtful and decent individuals I know. And I mean this sincerely. I am an avid reader and fan of his work, even when I think I disagree with it, and especially when I think I disagree with it. Greg's insights into controversial debates have helped me to think more deeply and clearly about many issues, including the present debate of monuments and the role they play in our society. So welcome, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. So the organizing question of today's episode is, what role do monuments play in a democratic republic like the United States? And how does that role impact the way we distinguish between particular monuments that need to go and those that can stay? So it's an easy question. It's very short and simple. What's, you know, what's your initial take? Well, I, I think that there are some distinctions that, that need to be made. Uh, I, I think a Republican society, as much as any other, should have, uh, in fact, needs people that it admires, that it needs leaders. Uh, I, I think it is useful uh, to think of those leaders and the people we admire more imaginatively than, than merely uh, leaders of the military or leaders of the executive branch of, of government. I would like to see more monuments, for example, to legislators. I, I think um, in some ways the National Garden of American Heroes, well, I think the I, I have many problems with it and the composition of it, it doesn't seem quite coherent. I think it does have uh, the right idea in terms of that, that diversity. Uh, what I would say about the concept overall in terms of the contemporary debate on who we honor and who we don't is that there is a difference 
in my mind, between people who we honor despite their sins and people who we honor because of their sins. Uh, so certainly the, the founding generation is a, a generation of tremendous moral complexity, particularly the Virginians and, and others from the, from the South. But, but uh, as a nation, we are, in my view, in their debt, tremendously so, and uh, their virtues outweigh their sins. And it's, it's worth keeping in mind that all great souls have both great virtues and great sins. I, I, I find that to be fundamentally different than someone like a Jefferson Davis or um, you know John Bell Hood or whomever else who we, we really know in history, in the case of the generals, only for uh, their defense of slavery and in, in, for example, Davis's case, primarily for that reason. So you, I can put you down for supporting the Taft Memorial outside the Russell Senate office building. Absolutely. Julia, where, where do you come down on this? So this is a good question. I've been thinking a lot about it in the last couple months of ha- as, you know, have, have a lot of people and I've, you know, I've been contemplating it in terms of my background. I uh, lived in Illinois for many years when I was younger. It's like Lincoln, Lincoln everywhere um, in, in Illinois and kind of thinking about the, the symbolic implications of, of that. Um, and also thinking about like learning about the monuments when I was younger and you know, like learning about the presidential ones in DC, for example, like I'm sure I learned about those in school or or what have you. And I was kind of like, mom, why aren't there any girls? So, you know, I, so I've been thinking about those power dynamics for a long, long time. And I I think that I agree with Greg about the, the execution, but not the principle. And so I agree that if we're going to have monuments, they should be a wider variety of people not just legislators but but to me it would be interesting to have you know other types of public servants or you know people who have served in other capacities that aren't just government um activists things like that i know that that i know that's you know you do see those around but also like i i have heard this from a variety of of people um a couple of weeks ago i kicked a hornet's nest on purpose on Twitter um, with regard to the taking down of the statue of Grant and kind of posed like, okay, let's, let's assume that we're going to hold past leaders to this incredibly high standard too high. And we end up losing people like Grant. Like what, what is the actual cost of that? Um, And I got some interesting answers amidst the trolling. And one of the answers was this kind of, we need myths, we need leaders, we need heroes. And I just am like, not sure of that. I feel a little skeptical about the idea of, of myths and leaders and heroes as they're depicted through monuments. So I guess I come down on the side of maybe all the statues should be trees, but if, if not, then you know I support a much kind of more creative thinking about who deserves to be memorialized, either literal people or maybe kind of representative figures of American activists, American workers, things like that. Lee? Yeah. So I, I admit this is a question that, that I hadn't given much thought to until very recently. Uh, and, you know, I, I've, I've lived and worked in Washington, D.C. for many years now, and I've been through many squares named for many people on horses, you know, McPherson Square and Farragut Square, and there's circles, Scott Circle, Thomas Circle. And if you ask me who those people were, uh, even right now, I'm like, I, I don't know, they were some 
guys on horses who maybe fought in the Civil War or maybe the Revolutionary War, or I, you know, they, they just become so much of the background that I don't even really think about them. Uh, you know, but then again, you know, that's me and I'm, you know, an oblivious white dude walking through Washington, D.C., kind of in my, my own head a lot of the time. So that may be me. But I, I've thought a lot about it, you know, over the last few days in preparation for this. And I sort of thought about it through the perspective of my daughters who are growing up. And, you know, we have a picnic outside the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. Suddenly they want to know, well, who's Abraham Lincoln? What did he do? We celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and they're interested. Who, who is Martin Luther King Jr.? We watch Alexander Hamilton, the, the musical, uh, when it comes out on Disney+, Plus, because isn't that what everyone did on July 4th? And my girls love it, and they want to know who's Alexander Hamilton. And they also want to know about the Schuyler sisters, because they have a fabulous uh, dance number and a catchy song. Uh, so, you know, I, it makes me think that the, the question of who we memorialize in our buildings, in our monuments, in our musicals and popular culture are uh, questions that ask us who, whose lives do we want to remember and do we want the next generation to ask questions about who is on the dollar bill, who's, you know, we had this whole controversy over whether Andrew Jackson Jackson should be on the $20 bill anymore. Uh, you know, I think that's a, another form of, of memorial and perhaps even one that's much more intimately involved in our daily lives, although maybe not anymore as we enter this cashless economy. Uh, so, you know, all of these questions are about basically, to me, uh, as a parent now, it's like, who do I want my daughters to be asking me about? And who do I want them to, to have curiosity about and whose lives should and, and stories should inform their understanding of American history as they grow up. I think those are all really um, interesting insights. And my, I typically agree with Greg that, uh, that, that monuments, memorials, statues are important. You know, as Carl Becker, the uh, famous historian, once wrote, history is what the present chooses to remember about the past. And our past is vitally important. Um, and we have to have some sort of understanding of the tradition and the heritage that we have, even if we change it, and, and especially if we change it. And I think one of the great challenges that we face as a Republican citizen, small r Republican, is trying to figure out what to change about our past, what to keep and retain about our tradition, and what to discard. But I also, I'm intrigued by, you know, both Julia and Lee, your line of thinking here, because, you know, monuments also do express, you know, power. They are illustrative of power dynamics in society. And I, you know, and so I'm trying to work through that and better understand that. And I'm especially interested and intrigued in the under this notion. And Julia, you mentioned this briefly about how the role of monuments in a democratic society and whether or not we even need them or whether or not it's important. But let's, so let's, let's start, you know, let's, let's get into this here. There are a lot of issues that are tangled up in this debate over monuments and whether they should be removed. And we are hopefully going to get to most of them today. But before we do, I want to discuss a narrow subset of that debate, right? 
I want to discuss uh, Confederate monuments. And the debate over how to remember and commemorate the Confederacy is not new. This has been ongoing since literally the end of the Civil War, especially the end of Reconstruction, when most of these statues started going up. And it appears that we have witnessed, though, more action on this front in the past few weeks with the toppling of all of these statues or the removal of all of these statues than occurred in the previous 100 plus years, with the exception being the, the weeks after the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. So with so much happening so fast, people may find it difficult to make sense of everything. But so let's start there. What role do civic monuments play in our politics and our culture? And I know we've touched on this a little bit already, but how should we think about them more generally when considering whether specific monuments should come down? Greg? Far be it for me to pick a quarrel with Becker, but I, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, Absolutely. To me, Go the standard it. of what the present chooses to remember about the past is a, is a permanent invitation to discard the past and hold it to the standards of the, uh, of the present, which, which are, of course, ever, ever changing. So that, that to me is a rejection uh, in principle of, the, uh, of, the, of history, not, a, not a, a definition of it. I think a couple of distinctions are uh, useful. One is going back to Julia's point, which I, I think is a is a, a, a useful and, and as she said, provocative one. Which is what what have we lost if we if we don't have these? First of all, I do think we have lost something if we don't create them, and that is the idea. And I'm drawing on Tocqueville here that um, a republican society does in fact uh, need leadership so that it does not, um, in a sense, uh, regress to mediocrity. I don't think there's anything wrong with, uh, in fact, I think there's much admirable with the concept of an, a, a meritorious elite, which is something we decry in every arena except for athletics. But I think there is, that there is a particular cost if a monument already exists to an honorable person and we both remove it and remove it by uh, what I would describe as, as less than... Um, sort of sober democratic processes. Uh, so that to me is, is, is an, a bit of a different category. In terms of what purpose they serve, I, I think, you know, no, none of us is, I, I think it would be hard to make the case historically that, that all good things are driven from the, the grassroots up. Were that the case, we would, um, we would not be remembering someone like Lincoln. And I think it's undeniably the case that Lincoln was a, a decisive historical mover with respect to slavery, just as Lyndon Johnson, whatever one thinks of his record on other issues, was a decisive historical mover on, on civil rights and voting rights. So uh, that, that concept of a, a, a meritorious elite, I, I think, is, is um, important in any society and may be particularly important in a Republican society that is, as Tocqueville noted, uh, has a tendency to, uh, toward a, a sort of oppressive, not a tyranny of the majority in the political sense, but more in a, in a cultural or a social sense. Julia? Yeah, so I think I see this a little bit differently as far as how we, how we contemplate, I, but I like the way that, that Greg has set this up, um, this notion that we, we evaluate the past through a couple of kind of clear 
lenses and we look for people who deserve recognition as being members of this meritorious elite. I think that the minute we start asking that question, and I agree that, that Lincoln and Johnson both played really important roles in advancing their respective causes, but I also think, I guess I think two things, right? One is that they both, the politics of their presidencies were shaped by a lot of people who don't get memorialized um who who really who risked a lot and sometimes who have even more potentially complicated legacies precisely because they pushed back against the existing power structure of the time and i don't really know i don't really know what is the most effective way to tell that story in a public context where you know where by definition often impressions are short conversations are short questions maybe superficial right impressions maybe superficial so like how do we how do we convey that the complexity of those power dynamics and also that the notion that we have a meritorious elite is is rendered problematic by our history of you know what i, I really want to use the, the roger uh, smith phrase ascriptive hierarchy um but i know that's not that's not a phrase that rolls off the tongue, but I mean, just so as you say, like racism and sexism and exclusion, right? So, so that's what's really challenging. I'm actually curious, Lee, if your daughters ever ask about all the guys and horses um, in DC and like ever notice that there are not a lot of women on horses um, in those areas. Cause that, as I said, was really clear to me like at a very young age that these people being represented don't look like me. And you don't really have a story when you're four or five about like, well, why is that? And so that can unwittingly tell a story that, well, if we have, we have this merit-based society where the best people are the ones who make, who rise to the top and make these powerful decisions, you know, why, why do all of those people tend to look a certain way, right? Why, why are certain groups that are quite numerous in our society excluded? And that I think is, you know, it invites all these really deep and complicated questions. And I'm not always... I'm not confident that we have a great channel by which those questions then get asked and considered and discussed because I don't know that everyone is, you know, as thoughtful as, as Lee and his kids. So that's, those are my, my reservations about that particular, that particular thing. Am I supposed to be answering a direct question about Confederate monuments or I can put that off for later? We're, we're going to get to that in just a second. Um, no, but I, I really do. I think that those are interesting points, but I, in, in, we're going to try to weave all of that in. And I agree a hundred percent and that it's something that we often miss or we don't touch on when we're looking at these statues. But um, I want to, Lee, do you have any thoughts on, on, on Greg's point just now, or also on, on what Julia was saying and what do your daughters say when they look up and see uh, all of these statues? Well, I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, As a family, we don't spend too much time in the, those downtown parts of the city it's you know we, we go we go to the museums or to or to the parks, um, so they don't ask those questions. Although there are certainly we especially during this pandemic we've been doing more screen time and we've been watching various educational programs. And there's a there's a show that they like on Netflix, which is actually quite good, called the Who Was Show, which does like these little you know mockumentaries about famous people. And you know, I, I've noticed that the, the show does a very good job of making sure that there's a, 
there's a lot of women who are represented. In fact, the episode they watched this morning was the paired biographies of Frida Kahlo and Susan B. Anthony. So they, they do get a lot of female role models, at least in their Netflix educational watching. But I, I want to kind of push on Greg's point about the importance of leaders as decisive actors. And Julia was kind of getting at this. I think Abraham Lincoln, you know, I mean, certainly there were a lot of there. He was an incredibly impressive leader. But in many ways, he was pushed into freeing the slaves by a a tremendous amount of public pressure and uh, a lot of uh, abolitionist Republicans in Congress. Uh, I mean, there's a, a wonderful book by Eric Foner called The Fiery it's called, I think it's called The Fiery Trial, you know, which really documents yeah, Lincoln's, Lincoln's changing views on slavery. And Eric Foner, you know, brilliant historian at Columbia, you know, and, and it's really a story of how Lincoln evolved in response to changing public pressure. And, you know, frankly, in response to the, to, to the way the, the South behaved as well. I mean, that, that it kind of escalated uh, to the point where there was really no choice left but to free the slaves. So it's, I think it, Lincoln's views on, on slavery were a little complicated, you know, and in many ways reflected his time. And you say the same thing about LBJ. We remember LBJ for the Civil Rights Acts of, of 64 and 65, but a more detailed reading of the history would find LBJ just kind of responding to public pressure. It's, you know, it's really, you know, a lot of the credit for, for the Civil Rights Acts goes, you know, to the many courageous people in, in Birmingham and, and other cities in the South who, who risked their lives, went to jail. And, you know, I mean, we don't have a monument to them. So I think there's a, you know, a, a tendency to want to attribute the, the, the moving and the great moments in American history to a few great men, maybe some women, but mostly men at this point, and say that it was their decisive leadership. But I would say that there are a lot of folks who, if they had been in their position, would have also done the same thing. Uh, and you know, also, if Abraham Lincoln had been elected president in 1850. Two instead of 1860, we probably wouldn't remember him. So I think when you know we're canonizing certain people as statues, you know we we are are ascribing a lot of important historical moments to them when really uh, that you know that's just not the complete story. Now, I mean, I accept that that maybe it's useful to have a few people to make monuments to certain people who played pivotal roles because they happened to be in positions of leadership. And then that's a way in to tell a broader story about that moment and to stoke curiosity. But, you know, as a democratic society, I mean, I think the the importance of participation and the ability of of social movements and lots of people to to make change uh, is incredibly important and vital. And that's what has made American democracy a success story because we've constantly reinvented ourselves and we've changed our values to become more inclusive and more participatory over the course of our history. And if monuments are going to tell a story, to me, that's an important part of the story that they ought to tell. 
We're going to get, Greg, yeah, do you want to follow up here? Because we're going to get to Confederate monuments in a second, but I want to give you an yeah, opportunity. Me, I just want to follow up on a couple of points. There is absolutely no question that leaders do not act in a vacuum, elected leaders. The nation, as we're recording this, is very appropriately honoring uh, John Lewis, primarily, I would, I, I think, primarily uh, not just for his legislative record in, in Congress, but also for his moral leadership of the civil rights movement. And I would absolutely uh, support removing the statue of Alexander Stevens from Statue Hall and replacing it with one of Lewis. So I, I, I think a, you know I think a republic needs both leaders and people pushing them. Uh, that said, I, I think to describe Lincoln as simply the product of public pressure, or Johnson as the product of, of public pressure, I, I think is unfair. I mean, Lincoln came very close to losing the 1864 presidential election and the union along with it. And the Emancipation Proclamation was no small part of the reason. Lyndon Johnson turned, the, we, we, we are looking at a Republican South today in no small part because he was willing to sacrifice the Democratic control of the South in order to advance this cause. I, I think we need both. I, I guess what, what troubles me a, a bit, we, would be this. It, it, it seems to me that the, the monuments based on our conversation are in fact sparking the right questions. So I, I don't, you know, Julia mentioned earlier myths, leaders, and heroes. Um, I don't think myths is inherently part of that question. So I, I was thinking as, as both of you were talking uh, about uh, a time my family was, when I was a kid, was driving from here to there and I think one of my younger brothers was having to memorize a list of presidents for school. And my youngest sister, who's maybe three years old, blurted out, can a girl be president? That to me is a success. That sparked a conversation that caused all of us to, to look at the, the issue uh, differently. And it would trouble me a bit, per, especially if we're doing it from the perspective of in the name of democracy and egalitarianism, if we were to think that we can ask these questions and our kids can ask these questions, but we don't trust that the average citizen walking down the street seeing the Lincoln Memorial or, or, or whatever else is, is able to ask these, these questions. In the spirit of debate, I mean, I think the reason Lincoln won in 1864 is because the army, uh, Union Army finally turned the tide. And so we, so we just managed to get lucky there. Um, Lee, I thought you were about to say because the Union Army stuffed the ballot box. Oh well, yeah, they also. They, <laughs> I mean, I mean that they, they, they also did. He was in danger at that point. Yeah, I really I mean, want they're, to they're, do a separate episode just on the 1864 election at some point, but that. Oh, it is. A, yeah, I know. <laughs> so there, there probably there probably was some. There was a lot of there was a lot of vote by mail. Uh, I, I don't know if that was vote by mail fraud in 1864. And I mean, LBJ, you know, there goes the South. I'm, that is somewhat apocryphal quote, although he probably said it. But at the time, I mean, he had just won this landslide election. And the only states that, that didn't vote for him were a handful of, of states in the South. So LBJ was thinking, great, you know, they can, they, we can lose the South and we win the, win the rest of the country. So it wasn't like a, a, an act of, of tremendous political courage because those bills were incredibly popular and they were supported Civil by rights two-thirds bills, majorities. Yeah, 64 and 65, they both had two-thirds support in both the House and the Senate. Well, the, okay. I, I don't want to derail us here, but, but, the, but, but I, I understood you to say they both had tremendous public support. They also, I mean, there was also tremendous public support, yeah. 
I, I would just note that those future. bills had been held up for years and years by filibusters. Uh, well, that, that's not a reflection of public support. That's a reflection of, of the ability of a handful of minority senators to, to use the power of the filibuster. So let's, yeah, let's get into this. Um, and the, the, let's get into the Confederates and the filibuster, maybe not the, the filibuster here. I would note, though, for our listeners that LBJ's Gettysburg speech on civil rights is absolutely phenomenal. And I think all too often we think of LBJ as this insider president or, you know, political leader and, and Kennedy as an outsider. But but LBJ gave some very stirring speeches with some great rhetoric about the importance of civil rights. And if you read uh, Robert Caro's biographies about Johnson, this is something that was deep seated in him from the from the very beginning. Now, you know, the calculations as to why he did what we can debate all of that. But Let's let's talk about Confederate monuments, though. So the justification, and this is a, a debate that, that Greg and I have had in the past. But the justifications for removing Confederate monuments or statues, and, and today they oscillate between slavery and rebellion. And so I, the question I have for you all is: Which one do you think is best, or do you even think it's possible to draw a line that just disqualifies everyone, in this case Southerners who supported the Confederacy, from public commendation? And Greg, this is trying to get at a point that you made in a recent piece that we'll have along with uh, your other works um, up on our show notes about we have to consider people all in all. And if that's the case, are we able to draw a line that just disqualifies a whole bunch of people all at once? I don't think there are very many lines one can draw categorically on any one group of individuals. Having said that, I think it is, first of all, I, 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 I mean, we, we may, I think we, we may have to have a separate throwdown on this, but uh, I, I just take it as undeniable in my book that the Civil War was about slavery. It, 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 at a minimum, one has to acknowledge that without slavery, it wouldn't have uh, the defense of slavery, which became quite uh, aggressive and, and even more morally repugnant as the war approached there would have been no uh, civil war. I think the deeper political issue, the political theoretical issue, uh, so to speak, here is the nature of rebellion. And uh, rebellion, I think it is important to understand, is not a constitutional act. It is an extra constitutional act. And it is uh, strange in my mind for a government, a constitutional government, to honor uh, those who rebelled against it militarily, especially by naming military bases after them. Now, there's a whole other distinction I would draw on the Confederate uh, monuments, which is uh, that there are some, if you visit the battlefield at Gettysburg, there, there, there are some that are quasi, you could make the argument, uh, post-bellum monuments to war dead. and and so forth. But there are an awful lot of these that were erected either in the Jim Crow era or uh, in the era of massive resistance to desegregation for the explicit purpose of uh, intimidating African-Americans. So those to me are also in a different category. Julia, where I suspect you might have similar views to Greg here, but what what do you think? Is it slavery? Uh, You know, can we draw bright lines around the Confederacy or do we, you know, what do you what do you think? I think absolutely bright lines. Um, I, I think this is not very complicated. And I think Greg has actually put it very nicely that, you know, we could we could debate all day long about specific 
causes and challenges of, of, you know, what the Civil War was about, I usually tell my students that it was absolutely about slavery at the outset for the Confederates. And then over time, that mythology has been rebuilt around, no, it was around, about states' rights. And that it was for, it was about procedural issues initially for the North, and then it became about slavery. And then we do the Gettysburg Address. So that's how I teach it. But I think, you know, for our purposes, absolutely it's about slavery and it's also about treason. I don't know, I'm Northern to the core and I don't have any problem saying these things and saying there's, there's got to be a bright line around that. And I wanna, I actually wanna, um, I'm just gonna like boringly agree with Greg for a second and then I'm gonna beat the dead horse of the previous debate for, for a second. Um, and then and James is probably gonna wanna kill me, but you know what, that's something I'm willing <laughs> to live with. So I agree really strongly with Greg about the, I mean, this is a historical fact, right? That the, that these Confederate, monuments went up at a not in the immediate aftermath of the civil war but later with a specific symbolic purpose and i think that there's an important through through line between that mythology and some of the discourse that we are seeing now that's important to think about and so i mainly have studied this as an academic through the kind of southern rhetoric within the democratic party a little bit later in the 40s and 50s as the civil rights movement was getting stronger and was really taking hold of an important force within the the democratic party and you start to get this kind of populist grievance coming from southern democrats of you know we're being we're being sidelined and left out and our power taken away and i think that that links up with the the rebel mythology in a way that is that has traction in the 21st century and that's that's really problematic right when when powerful people people with access to to in the case of the confederacy military power in the case of you know southern senators in the 50s political power and now i think we also you know political cultural power when people with power start saying look at i am powerless i'm i'm a victim i'm a victim of this sort of rampant ideology that's taken over and I can no longer be myself or express my views or live how I want to live. And that that power dynamic is sort of inverted, right? And powerful people use populist grievance. That creates a really big problem. I think that, you know, that's what subverts a real discussion. That's what subverts real progress toward justice. It's not, I don't know if I'd say it's the biggest problem, but I think it's a deeply problematic and very pervasive kind of discourse. So I, I think it's sort of related to a point I want to make about um, about power to clarify something I said earlier, and then I and then I'm going to beat the dead horse, and then I'm going to shut up. So I, I did want to clarify it because I think Greg helpfully pointed out I said you know maybe not everybody is passing a monument having a really deep and thoughtful discussion, and Greg pointed out it's it's real it's very dangerous for. I think for academics and people in our position to say well I am capable of having this nuanced discussion, but other people are not. That's not. I, I understand how that's a reasonable interpretation of what I said, but that's not what I meant. I think that those, the capacity and the interest in having those kinds of discussions is spread throughout different, different segments of society. People at different, different levels of, you know, income and formal education, whatever demographic that you might want to think about. What, what troubles me is I think that I'm increasingly coming around to this view that, that Americans are kind of, some subset of us is attracted to power and kind of like see, you know, we see power in a monument or in a narrative about power and we're kind of drawn to the powerful side. And when we have these debates about who do we 
who do we memorialize and what standards do we hold them to? We're sort of like, like you see this in the question about George Washington holding slaves. People see themselves, they immediately envision themselves as being George Washington. Like, why am I being judged unfairly? They don't see themselves as own a judge, you know, his enslaved person who had escaped and who Washington pursued relentlessly. I think that's one of the challenges is like, we have this, this discourse where on the one hand, people use being powerless in a very weaponized way. And on the other hand, a lot of people in our, in our society tend to kind of side with, with power in certain kinds of debates. And I'm going to just briefly beat the dead horse of the Lincoln-Johnson debate, because I think that one of the things that's sort of what this shows is we have this, this conceptual distinction between political bravery and political pressure that actually like the, the presence of that debate shows us a lot about what we value regardless of of what's true in either of those cases which is that we want to we want to memorialize people who kind of had a moral vision and ran against the grain right and took political risks and maybe risked their whole political career to do what was right and absolutely that's that's admirable and we kind of all feel it but it's actually not how democracy works right democracy works in in movement building and coalition building and it's it's complicated and it's not it's brave but it's not necessarily brave in that particular sense and i think that that's it becomes very difficult to talk about specific figures in those terms because most most political figures who built a powerful legacy have a kind of mixture of reading the political room and having a kind of moral bottom line that they they're willing to take a stance for. And I, and that's, that's complicated. We can't just put them in one box or the other. So I think that debate really is, is tremendously illuminating about what we value in these kinds of conversations about figures of the past. Okay, I think I managed to tie that together. So I'm going to quit while I maybe am ahead. Greg, what, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, to me, the complication is a cause for, in many ways, admiration and education. I, I, there, there is no question that these things are complicated and that the idea that Lincoln reached down from on high and ended slavery in a vacuum, for example, is, uh, is wrong. Uh, by the way, I think the idea that Lincoln simply acceded to some, you know, to sort of public pressure that arose from the ether is, is also wrong. I, I think one of the things we are, uh, I say this as a Burkean, uh, one of the capacities we are losing as a political society is the capacity for nuance and, and for complication, uh, that everyone must be a hero or be a complete hero or a complete villain and, and so forth. So I, I, I think that's right. I want to be careful how I say this, but um, one has to, uh, in, in having these conversations, acknowledge that there are both different conceptions of justice. I don't think there are any different conceptions in my mind about police murdering an African-American who was not uh, threatening them. But there are certainly debates about justice. And I, I don't think it would be, I, I, I will take a backseat to no one in having criticized Donald Trump, but I, I don't think it would be fair to say that only the populist right has weaponized powerlessness. I, I think a lot of the debates we're having, let, let me just roll a grenade into the room. When the Harper's letter came out two weeks ago or so, a lot of people, public intellectuals of various stripes decrying the need for the, the, the what, what they called the 
illiberalism. Uh, the immediate response to it, uh, I, in fact, I would argue the, over, the, the, the predominant response to it was not engaging their arguments. It was saying that they were wealthy and privileged. That, to me, raises some of the same risks that Julia is talking about. So having ignited that fire, I'll go back on mute. I love it when people roll grenades into the room in conversations, because that's when they get really interesting. And that's when we might actually learn something or at least expand our, our thinking. But Lee, what are you jumping on the grenade? What are you doing here? I want to take the grenade and, uh, and throw it aside. I think we could spend a lot of time on the Harper's letter, but I think that would be a distraction from this conversation. And there's already been a lot of words said on that on many other podcasts. I think that Greg's point on like, you know, we need to appreciate the nuance and that things are not so good versus evil. And, you know, we all, you know, all, all of our great leaders have a bit of, uh, a bit of both, I think. Certainly, if we think about Lyndon Johnson as, as a leader, he did a lot of things that were pretty, pretty shady and you know, borderline corrupt, but on the other hand, you know, he helped to, to shepherd some really important civil rights legislation. Lincoln was mostly mostly on the side of, of good, but you know, he's not a perfect person either. And yeah, I mean, some of this is like, how do we have heroes and leaders who we memorialize and yet sort of accept that they were imperfect people and we're all imperfect. And, and you know, I think that's a, it's a challenge because we, you know, I mean, I think we, we all want leaders who we can look up to and he, who we can truly memorialize in the, in the fullest sense of that world because, you know, we, we all strive to work towards some sort of broader moral vision and be part of something beyond ourselves. I mean, I think there, there's something very inherent in the human condition to want leadership and want guidance and want that sort of clarity of, of a moral purpose. And I think that's what leads to the kind of Manichaean thinking of good versus evil that frankly drives tremendous conflicts in our society. Uh, but I mean, there's a reason we keep coming back to that binary in civilization after civilization. So, you know, I think, you know, perhaps one takeaway from this conversation uh, for me, and I know we're not quite at the takeaways conclusion section, but it is how do we think about monuments that present the complexity of history, that it's not all one thing or the other, it's not all just decisive leadership from on high, it's not all social movements and grassroots activism, but it's kind of the intersection of those, and that all, you know, no, no president or no, no leader ha has a perfect record on anything, but the leaders who we memorialize should be on balance better than worse. And we can acknowledge flaws. I mean, and, you know, and frankly, we should acknowledge flaws because it puts tremendous pressure on, on everyone to be perfect if we don't allow that imperfections are okay. But as long as we're striving towards a brighter moral vision and one that's more inclusive and respectful of everyone, then that's something to be celebrated. Greg, what do you what do you think about Lee's 
observations here? I think I by and large agree. I, I think I may be throwing myself on my on my own grenade, but it, it does seem to me at some point if we lose the capacity for nuance and for complexity, then we are surrendering the capacity for self-government. So if we can't find a way to uh, cultivate that and to give our to, to honor it in one another and uh, to give our political system the space it needs uh, to exercise that, then I think we have a problem. I think we, we a real problem is self-government. I think we particularly have a problem if you know, Lee, Lee referenced us striving toward a, a brighter moral vision. You know, we can debate the, the sort of language of progressivism, but if we take that as a premise, what it means presumably is that ideally, someone yesterday uh, is always going to be guilty of not meeting the moral vision of tomorrow, the moral standards of tomorrow, because we're always striving for something better. And that, that, that strikes me as a, um, as a, as a real problem. If, if we're going to have any sense of, uh, uh, of the past or of complexity uh, at all. Yeah. I'm really intrigued by this, the intersection between the past and the present and the future and the role that tradition plays in that, because we we need to think about the future, right? And but to do that requires thinking about the past and where we came from and where we're going, and it requires that requires a very conscious creation and maintenance. It seems to me of a tradition, and that tradition provides continuity in time. Now we can improve upon that con- that tradition. It can be an explicit and conscious decision that we make. We can denounce that tradition at times, but the tradition has to be there. And that helps us to create these possibilities of greatness that transcend any one individual in any one lifetime. And I do think it's really hard for people to assign importance outside of a context. So you have the context of your own circumstances, which gets to Julia's uh, first point about statues and why they're not, if they're only all white old men, then that's problematic for a large number of Americans. But it's also context um, that you get handed down via tradition and the stories that we tell. And that creates a commonality and it creates a common world. And that world, to a certain degree, is is permanent. Um, it's there. It's not changing. It doesn't die like human beings do. And I think engaging with that world is is vitally important. And I think statues help us to do that. But with that being said, I mean, Greg, you raised two different questions earlier on when you said it's a question of what statues to erect today and then what statues to take down. And these are related, but two very different questions. And I think in a lot of respects, we've been talking about what statues to erect. But you know, I think the both sides in the statue debate um, really intrigue me, especially when the statues in question um, depict the founding fathers or figures who did not serve in the Confederate States of America government or fight for it. So think about people like Christopher Columbus, Thomas Jefferson, and the other founders, and even John C. Calhoun. And if we're thinking about what statues to take down. It seems to me that efforts to draw a line are going to be especially hard when doing so concerns these individuals and the people that we've been talking about in terms of you know, nuance. There's, there's complications there. They've done bad things. They've done good things. Um, and they may have done bad things that we absolutely need to remember as well. And I wish we had time to adjudicate each historical legacy separately. But in lieu of that, Greg, can you share with us and our listeners, I mean, do you think there's anything that should be foremost in our minds when assessing the contributions of these individuals and others to American history and what, and then evaluate and that we can use to evaluate 
calls to take these statues down? I'm going to weasel out of your question in the following way. I, I, I think the, the one thing we need to keep in mind is not to have one thing in mind, uh, that there's not going to be a mathematical formula for assessing this. It requires moral judgment and moral nuance and a capacity, as, as you said before, to, to take things all in all. So if we look, if we're talking about political leaders, and we've also talked about the importance, which I endorse, of activist leaders or you know, citizens, um, so forth, provided we're doing so across the political spectrum, then I think the question is, what was the, the sum total of their contribution to a, a system of Republican self-government? And I, I think the uh, the idea that, to, to take one example, George Washington is reducible solely to the abhorrent fact that he enslaved people, it's problematic on so many levels. One, I think it's just reductionist and uh, inaccurate, inaccurate in terms of a, a balance of the man. The second thing is that uh, the speed at which moral standards are, you can say changing or changing progress, or, or you can say progressing, uh, means again, that people yesterday who were heroes yesterday are villains Today, so to take a lead, an example from political leadership, uh, Barack Obama campaigned for the presidency, opposing, uh, included, saying he opposed same-sex marriage. Now that that is someone campaigning for the presidency today, at least on the Democratic side, saying that would be considered an outcast and abhorrent, and, and certainly would not merit any uh, any sort of honor. And I think the same is true among, um, to, to, we've been talking about racial justice and, and so forth. I, I think the same is probably true among uh, the, the, the major uh, citizen figures in that movement. I, I don't, I, I, I'll just throw out one example. When I teach American political thought, I assign W.E.B. Du Bois, a vital figure in the, not just in this movement, but in, uh, in just how we think about these issues. In the 1940s, when Joseph Stalin was in the midst of murdering uh, upwards of 20 million people, and it was known to everyone that he was doing that, Du Bois called the uh, Soviet Union the most hopeful country on earth. Uh, I don't think he's reducible to that. I don't think anyone is reducible to their worst sin. And I think it would put a lot of other causes that, um, that we should care about, not least among them criminal justice reform. Uh, in, in real jeopardy if we can't take a nuanced, holistic view of a person's life. Julia? Great. So I would, um, yeah, I'd like to respond and think about the, the Harper's letter. I will jump on the, the grenade and I'll try to be nuanced and, and, and fair. And I'll also preface this by saying that I think far more than I think about statues, I think about teaching the American presidency, which is something that I do I've done every year for over a decade. And I, I think probably most of you have taught presidency or something like it in the past it is sort of like my main you know thing I was hired to teach and and I really want my students not to come to a particular conclusion but to kind of ask some some new and more nuanced questions and so I think about context and here's how here's I think the linkage between these kinds of questions we might ask about Thomas Jefferson or George Washington and and I actually really want to sort of zero in on those two figures and the way that we're talking right now about the Harper's letter. So I also would want to say at the outset, I, um, I tried to be, I tried to engage substantively a little bit with this on Twitter. I kind of said most of what I had wanted to say on Twitter and I didn't write a longer piece about it, but also, you know, I, I disagreed with the letter. I 
I am friends with some people on it, I'm friendly with, with a number of people on there, um, admire their work. And so I, I don't want it to be an attack on them, but I do kind of want to talk about the letter in, in context. So I think that I take Greg's point that there's something lacking in attacking the signatories of a letter for being wealthy and privileged without taking on their, the substance of their argument. But I also think that there's context there, right? And the fact that the whole point of a letter was that those particular, a particular mix of people and people with standing in, you know, the, the kind of political and literary communities and history and the different fields they come from, that was the whole point was for us to understand them in their context. So I think it's it's fair game to kind of say, well, you know, who are these people? What is the, what is the precise argument they're making? Which was one of the challenges I had as the letter didn't have a lot of precise argumentation about what is happening, to whom is it happening, what should we do about it? It was just kind of like this thing happening and there's these kind of influential people who signed on. And so I think it's fair to take that you know, to take that on and to think about the power dynamics. I mean, I, I was actually thinking about the Harper's letter too when I was talking about this, the weaponization of powerlessness, right? What does it mean for people who do have tremendous platforms and tremendous clout to say, look, not every voice is getting a hearing. What voices are we talking about? This, I think there's a direct analogy to this debate and the way that I try to get my students to think about Jefferson and Washington. And that is not to come to, as I said, any particular conclusion, but to think through the problem from multiple angles and to take them in their, in their context. And here, I, I think I wanna quibble a little bit with Greg and with a, a number of people who I have heard talk about changing moral standards. I actually don't think moral standards change very much. I think the relationship between those standards and particular issues is what changes. So throughout American history, people have, have adhered to a belief in equality, but they've had different notions that are kind of widespread in society about where African-Americans fall into that, where gay people fall into that, right? Those are the beliefs that have shifted. The kind of underlying moral value, I think, is actually quite constant. And that's where I, I try to get my students to kind of think about this. Like, if you were living in the early American Republic, you know, how would you see society? Who would you be? You know, what are the options for what kind of person you might be? Uh, what kind of values would you hold? What would you see as a threat to those values? And that, I think, actually allows us, like, I very much believe in not holding George Washington or Thomas Jefferson to the standards of their day, or to our day, but to the standards of their day, right? And to think fully about what those standards were. What were the debates at the time? Who were the opponents? But also, you know, who was suffering? Who was suffering as a result of those actions. And so I, I very much agree with Greg that this shouldn't be reductionist, but it, instead it should be really like fully fleshed out and contextualized. Greg? I think we agree. Uh, the, the, um, there cer certainly should be context. It, it, uh, Montpelier, James Madison's home, there's been a, a wonderful effort to, uh, not just to memorialize, but to create a, a living understanding of the enslaved people who lived there uh, and uh, including uh, involving their, their, their descendants. And I, I think that is an important addition uh, to, the, uh, to the story. And um, that, that speaks to the, the nuance that's important. I, I, I do think that equality is, um, I, I agree that that's an unchanging moral standard, but, but its application to, to specific facts is really where the, 
uh, the rubber meets the road. And, uh, and those do in fact change quickly. And it does seem to me that in the current environment, I'm not sure how we can uh, lionize uh, Barack Obama, for example, or, or Bill Clinton, or you take your pick on the, on the other side. So this has been a really interesting conversation. I think it's really gotten me thinking a lot here and we're now running out of time or are out of time. But I, before we leave, I want to, you know, ask everyone, you know, what do you, did your thinking change? What are you, how are you looking at this question moving forward? And let's start with you, Lee. Monuments are really a hard question. And I I had thought about this a lot. This has been a, a great conversation. And like many of the conversations on this podcast, we get to the point we're like, wow, this is a hard question and it requires a lot of nuance. And I think the challenge with monuments in particular is that as a, as a form, they don't really necessarily create a ton of space for nuance because you're creating a statue that's cast in, in stone or marble or, or bronze or whatever they make statues out of. And by nature, that is going to be fixed and not malleable. And you have to choose who you want to represent and how you want to represent. And that statue is going to stand for a long time. So by nature, it's a hard thing to make monuments, to to choose to memorialize certain people in a way that's nuanced. So it really then depends on us to, to approach statues with nuance and, you know, to maybe think about how to as we think about statues that we might build in this contemporary moment to think about how, how will those statues be remembered? Not, you know, right now, but 50 years from now, a hundred years ago, a hundred years from now. And what stories do we want people to tell? And most importantly, what questions do we want people to ask? That reminds me of what Balzac's uh, quote about sculpture when asked what it was. And it's like when you, you know, throw a stone down the stairs and what remains is sculpture. So it, it, it may be a, a, a clunky medium for nuance, but you're right. Approaching statues with nuance is, is I think, very important. Julia? Yeah, great. So um, I just want to, I have two quick points that I want to make in conclusion. So I really appreciate this, the back and forth about political bravery and, and Lincoln and, and Johnson in particular. And this is, again, I'm just, at this point, I'm just blatantly cribbing from uh, my colleagues here to use in my presidency class in the spring or whenever I teach it um, is like to bring that into the discussion and like get my students to interrogate that concept, I think is really exciting and an aspiration for me. And I hadn't really thought about it in terms of the statute debate. So I really appreciate that a lot. The other thing I, I just want to clarify, this is a point of clarification since Greg brought up Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and, and in, in your words, the other side, I, I want to make very clear that I, I speak for, for no one myself here, but I'm definitely not like plumping for a side. And I would not be excited about lionizing either um, Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. And I think they're absolutely subject to the same kind, these same kinds of interrogations and examination of moral standard. And part of what I ultimately try to do when I teach this is actually to to use some of this older stuff and then bring my students, some of whom have been steeped in this admiration of recent democratic presidents, not all, but there's, there's usually a good number of them who have, um, and, and really, um, and, and ruin lionization for them, for, for everybody, um, and instead replace it with, with lots of questions. So it's, it's certainly not, for me, a, a political agenda that some set of leaders is 
deserving of this and another is not, but that power is what needs to be considered with this very, you know, strong scrutiny. I think that, uh, thank you for that. I think the, um, I think the kind of picking up on that at the, uh, in your comments about power, I think how we talk about statues today and historical legacies today bears an, it looks an awful lot like how we conduct our politics more generally. And essentially, if you have a very narrow circle picture in your mind, and they're just a handful of, you know, white property males in the middle of that circle, those are the people who can participate in politics in what, 1787. And then over time, that circle gets larger and larger and larger to the point where today it includes pretty much everybody over the age of 18 and felons, I guess. Um, but even felons and people under the age of 18 can participate in popular political activism and demonstration and other things. But the point is that who is deemed appropriate to step into that realm of political conflict has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And I would suspect that over time, our statues will also begin to reflect the diversity within that circle. And, you know, my wife is working with the uh, the commission to, ce to celebrate the the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. And as part of that, they're commissioning a statue. And it's been fascinating to watch the design process and to hear the thought process about who do we want to honor? How do we want to honor? And even in the public murals that they're, that they're, that they're asking to go up. But I do want to say that I think nuance is really important. If that's the one thing I can underscore before turning it over to Greg for, for the last word here. In today's debate, if we disagree with someone, we say that, you know, we would call them a racist or something else. And then that pushes them outside of that circle of legitimate political conflict. And that's the easiest way to win arguments, it seems to us today. And it, and it looks like we're doing that also to statues. And look, I will fully concede that the American people have every right to take down whatever statues they want. This is not that. I'm not making an argument that statues can't be taken down. But what troubles me about this current debate is the lack of nuance accompanying the the argument about these uh, some of these statues, not all of these statues. So I really want to underscore that point, both from from Julia and from Lee and also Greg. Um, and then I guess, Greg, you have the last word here. So use it wisely. Yeah, I thank you so much for having me again. It's been a really interesting discussion. Uh, I think for me, nuance is, is, is the key point. And if we've lost that skill, figuring out how to reacquire it uh, civically, I'm, uh, I, I will admit that I tend to cringe a little bit uh, reflexively and unfairly when we discuss power dynamics. But I, I think Julia's point is well taken that, that it's, uh, I would argue on both sides, but there, there are certainly many ways in which powerlessness and powerfulness get used as, as wedges. And I, and I agree we need to be more cognizant of that. Well, thank you for joining us today. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.